the thing that I think people should feel really good about is the U.S. government takes the privacy and safety of your data more seriously than probably any organization that you give your data to on a regular basis. Getting logistics done across the entire country is wickedly, wickedly hard. The thing about healthcare.gov that's really wild, it is not the largest technology failure that the U.S. has had. It was just a very public one. Hi, I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Shelby Spees. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OlliCast, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OlliCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OlliCast. You know, I saw it on the news, you know, that this huge, very important component of healthcare policy launches and falls flat on its face. And I had a reaction that I think a lot of technologists had, which was like, whew, better them than me. Like, how awful? Like, that's terrible. And then about a month later, I got a phone call. And uh, it was from a friend, and I answered the phone, and he was like, hey, we're getting some people together to help on this healthcare.gov thing. Can you help? And I was like, uh, <laughs> sure. I mean, because what can you say to that, right? You have to say yes when someone throws something like that in front of you. And did all the stuff, like, had to tell my co-founders that I was going to leave for a while and go do this thing. And when I told them, they were both like, yeah, that, that, that must happen. And the whole thing was wild. Like, I still have this email that was titled Logistics that just said, this was like all of the prep. It was, hey, uh, get a hotel room in this hotel. We're on the third floor. If we're not there, we're at the building where all the action is. Just say you're with the ad hoc response team and we'll let you in. And like, that was the logistics, right? Wow. And so fly out there, show up. And what it was at that point was a diving save to take this enormously complicated system and try to get people insured through it. And it was an enormous effort. How many people a day were getting insured when you show up? <sighs> Some. <laughs> um, it was better than, I think, three people got through the first day. Nice, nice. Not zero. And by December 24th, which was kind of the end of like one of the first phases, we got over 100,000 families through. Because it's really hard to measure these things because it's measured in families, not people. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. So yeah, but it was a brute force effort for sure. Sobering. <laughs> so you came home from this catastrophe slash triumph with this firm conviction that what? Oh, when we came home. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. So we were doing rotating six week kind of tours. Yeah. And um, when I came home from that, I was like, well, that was an event. Like that was a thing I did. Let's go back to doing what I was doing before. Normal life. Yeah, go, let's go back to regular life. And then not too much longer after that, there was a team of people. So I was on the team that was trying to keep the existing thing running. There was another team of people that were trying to rewrite part of it. And those people reached out and were like, hey, we could use some help. And that's when it occurred to me that, hey, the government needs external parties to play with to make all of these systems work that make the system that is our society work. And that's what got us at Trust interested in 
working with the government and trying to make systems that work for everybody, which is one of the reasons why government systems are hard to build. The government is us, literally. The government is us. No one is coming. No one's coming. So this is a great opportunity for you to introduce yourself. Sure. So I'm Mark Verlatt. I'm the CTO and co-founder of TrustWorks, which is a software consultancy that works with uh, government agencies, healthcare companies, um, large organizations. And uh, I think the pithy way that I would describe what we do is we build software products for organizations that, that don't build software products for themselves. And so historically, government, it sounds like it was sort of siloed away from the rest of the tech industry. Is that sort of how you describe it? I hate the term siloed. It's one of those words that means almost nothing, and I would like to ban it from polite society. But yes, you're right. It's like there's this whole like government, you know, gov tech that has grown up. That's almost like there's been very little crossover between tech tech and gov tech. What's really fascinating to me about this is that didn't used to be the case at all. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. government used to be capable of building things and the internet. Literally came from the U.S. government. So the internet came from the U.S. government. Um, Here's one that blows people's minds. Most medical record systems, the most popular medical record system came from the VA. Oh, yeah. VA has got their shit down. Other countries send their healthcare, like, monkey mucks to come learn from, not the rest of the healthcare system in the U.S., but from the VA. It is the most successful healthcare system in the world, or was. Yeah, well, and so this is the thing that happened, is over our lifetimes... The U.S. government decided to stop doing things for itself and depending on the private sector to do it for them. And there are a lot of ways where that makes sense. Like you don't want to manufacture your own pencils, right? Like it makes sense to buy pencils. And I think it makes a lot of sense given the size and the complexity of most government projects. I think it does make sense to lean on the private sector, but they went too far and we got into a situation where the people inside the government didn't understand anything about what they were buying. Right. And that caused a lot of problems. The thing about healthcare.gov that's really wild, it is not the largest technology failure that the U.S. has had by far. It was just a very public one. Yeah. What is the largest? It depends on how you define it. Because if you look at... I mean, the F-35 notwithstanding. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I think there are a lot of large defense projects that could, could fall into that category. But if you want to talk about a software system, um, the one that comes to mind is um, there was a, a project to build the FBI case file system. And if I'm remembering correctly, it was $1.1 billion and then got canceled. Mm-hmm. Oh. That's the largest one that I am can think of, but that's the thing. There could be others. Mm-hmm, right. How would we know? And the nature of most of these, yeah, how would we know? Well, so this brings us to the vaccine rollout. Yeah. A lot going on there, huh? Mm-hmm. It's a bit. It's a bit. <laughs> I'm interested in actually hearing, like, if you can give us, like, a nutshell version from your perspective, knowing how government agencies work with software consultancies and stuff, like what might people not be seeing in the current rollout situation? I mean, honestly, I think what people are seeing is this is one of the clearest lived experiences of how complicated, and I'm going to tease Charity a little bit here, siloed the various parts of government are. Because what we're, for a vaccine rollout, we're talking about interactions between multiple federal agencies and 50 states plus territories plus local municipalities, county, and city. 
none of those are designed to work together and that's on purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. None of them share trust. And that's also on purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we, we wanted it this way. Yeah. The federalization and local municipalities having like that local authority. It, it's good for a lot of reasons, but yeah, when something you need something to roll out across the entire country, it adds a lot of complexity. Well, then I just want their money for my fiefdom. I don't want to like topple my fiefdom. Mm-hmm. I just want money for my fiefdom. So what you're seeing is a getting logistics done across the entire country is wickedly, wickedly hard. Mm -hmm. And that's just getting the vaccines distributed, right? Yeah. The other half of this, which is the part I feel a lot more confident speaking about is the, you know, someone's like, why can't I get a sign up? Why are the websites so hard? What about that guy in the New York Times who like, Mm -hmm. you know, made a sign up website and it only cost $50, which is one of the most irresponsible things that I've seen the New York Times publish in a while. Mm -hmm. That was journalistic malpractice, just straight up, (laughs) like we can get into that, but continue. But the thing is, all of these software systems are built on top of policies and these interactions and it's Conway's law at national scale right? There is no like vaccine.gov because structurally there is no single place to go get a vaccine. And so you see a lot of volunteer projects Mm -hmm. that have kind of popped up to try to fill this gap. You know, there's the, what is it? It's vaccinate CA, I think is the one that I'm familiar with where they, they literally just have volunteers calling all of the places where vaccines might be. And then they update a website and I got to tell you, brute force works, right? Like that's a fine way to do it. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have to do it that way is indicative of the way the US government works kind of all the time. Like this is how it operates. And to be clear, Mm -hmm. this isn't because California doesn't have a technology arm. They have a very, very solid, like they got covid19.ca.gov up quickly They've maintained it correctly. They've integrated with Apple and Google's exposure notification work. All of these systems have come online. That one was done entirely by government folks. That wasn't a contract job. And it's, I think, a good example of places where the government can and does do good work. But but does it matter if it's not in concert with everyone else, with the rest of the system? And that is the difficulty. Yeah. And this is also one of the places where the administration matters. Yeah. Like it really does. Like having people who are running things and paying attention and trying to make things work matters. Say more about that. (laughs) Why would anyone not want things to work? Uh, You know, charity, I honestly, I don't know. I mean, when I think about what government is for, right. It's to reduce the number of things that we need to worry about. Right. Right. And it's the stuff that we need to do collectively together. Like, that's what it's for. And as the world gets more and more complicated, we need those things. Yeah. We shouldn't all have to be experts in, like, the protocols of how the FDA approves what medication or whatnot, or, like, seeking out our own hydroxychloroquine on the internet or any of this shit. Like, it's actually too complicated for us all to keep track of. But even if you sort of, like... Ignore bad actors. There's so much complexity. And I wonder if this is something that's different about the vaccine rollout versus your experience with healthcare.gov, where there's so much complexity at the local level. Like you're actually trying to get vaccines into people's arms. And so it goes beyond, 
entering your information on a website that can be a single website across the entire country. Did you run into that sort of thing um, with healthcare.gov that that you had like sort of the local level complexities? Oh, yes. Despite it being nationwide? Yeah, because remember for the way that healthcare exchanges work, there is one exchange per state Mm -hmm. and healthcare.gov is the exchange for states that didn't build their own. Mm. So the idea is you would go to healthcare.gov and fill out some information and it would tell you, oh, you're from California. You need to go to the California one because they have an exchange and they're running it themselves. And so it was this kind of delegation thing. But if you were in one of the states that didn't build their own, then healthcare.gov would go and collect all the information and calculate all of the things and make sure the business rules were all right. Mm -hmm. And then package up this occasionally gigabyte plus XML document that represented your application and all of that, and then ship that to that state's insurance company. Mm-hmm. Since we're on the top, since this is an observability podcast, after all, and since it's one of my favorite stories, can we just uh, detour a little bit to talk about the cutting edge observability used by the ad hoc team to diagnose when the healthcare.gov was up or down and how that matured over the months? <laughs> It did mature. It did mature. How did it begin? It began with uh, having CNN up. Oh, wow. Or C-SPAN. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then it progressed pretty rapidly. Uh-huh. And did you get a uh, monitoring check out next, like something end-to-end or just like a ping check or something? No, we had New Relic in there. And we're using that. Uh-huh. And we were paying attention to end-to-end. And the reason we were paying to end to end is because trying to pay attention to anything else was just madness. There was too much complexity inside the system to like track. And so the primary indicators were what's the total error rate on the site and what's the response latency. And we flew by those and we would recognize the patterns and we sort of knew what would happen. And they didn't have those when it launched. They didn't have those. Um, They thought they did. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know what the system was because it wasn't in use by the time I got on the project. But when the thing launched, it was it was monitored. I mean, there was no concept of observability at that time. But they were like, no, we've got monitoring and all the lights are green, even though CNN is saying that the site's down. I see. Well, who are you going to believe? Me or your, your lying eyes? <laughs> but yeah, that was, I mean, something that I think does reflect the, the kind of observability push is getting that in place was like basically the first thing that the response team did. Like yeah. um, Mikey Dickerson pushed that through. Yeah. And then that's what let everything else happen. Right. Because if you can't see what the fuck you're doing, you're just going to waste a lot of energy and effort. And, and yeah, it's so basic, but like closing that feedback loop of just, yeah, the more you know, the better you can act. But when you know nothing, right. everything is wasted. And when you start bringing that back to like, how are we doing with vaccine distribution? Yeah. Like think about the like monitoring and observability problems of that, yeah. where you have each state, which may or may not want to tell you what their numbers are. Right. You know, we've seen Florida do some shenanigans. Coupled with the privacy concerns and all the people who are like paranoid about their information. And I think almost the hardest part of this is that there's a double dose thing. Like, I think it's so much harder to keep track of, okay, but did they already get their first dose? Is it within this window? Are they eligible for the second one? You know, I think that that seems like an incredibly hard problem given the infrastructure that we have. Oh, yeah. No, it's bad. I think the dosage and the dosage spacing is actually, I haven't seen medical professionals talking about that particularly being the problem as much as they're talking about like, well, do we 
you know, they're all worried about the variant problem. And again, like I'm, I'm out over my skis. Like I'm, I'm not a medical professional, right? Like I'm trusting what they tell me. And when there's a chance to get the vaccine, I will be very happy to receive it. But when we're talking about the systems that we're all interacting with to know, like, are there vaccines available? Can I like, can I get my mom a vaccine? Why is it so hard for somebody to sign up to get an appointment? Yeah. Like these are all reflective of the, the lack of observability. Well, it's it's observability and it's also organizational complexity. Like this is Conway's law made yeah. made real with pretty unfortunate consequences. Yeah. And I think those kind of go hand in hand. It's something I've seen a few times and I've heard other people discuss it where when your organization is bad at talking to itself or bad at when parts of your organization is bad at talking to each other, it's that much harder to get observability into your production systems. You know, people have their little fiefdoms and there's a lot of like territorial wars and stuff. And so it's just like observability is part of that socio-technical problem we're trying to solve of just like doing a better job at, you know, what our organization is supposed to be doing. And when people block your ability to just ask and answer questions that affects everything from the customer signup process and and bi intelligence all the way down to like system level knowing how well we're doing and so this is something i've just been sort of thinking about and i've been curious about just like it, you know is this something we see often in, in organizations where you sort of have that command and control like fiefdoms everyone in their individual castles and moats and stuff is that related to a lack of observability I mean, I think so. The way I think about this and the way I try to explain this to people is think about stakeholder management. Like if you're in an organization, you have to manage stakeholders. What most people have a hard time understanding is just the scale of U.S. government organizations. And so we're not talking about managing five. We're talking about managing like 50 or 150 independent stakeholders Mm -hmm. who if you wanted to like understand what's going on with all, all of those people, you have to convince them that like you have legal access to like get that data that you want to observe. You have policy reasons to have that access mm-hmm. and you have to manage all of that all the time. And some of those stakeholder groups are, you know, they're external to the government. Like they are the, the constituents that you're trying to serve. And something that it's an enormous difference when you're thinking about why does government technology cost like more money or why is it expensive or what's going on? It's not just that stakeholder management. It's that our government, to its credit, believes when it offers something, it has to serve everybody. Mm-hmm. And so you're required by law to have everything be accessible out of the gate. It has to work for people who can't hear or can't see. Mm-hmm. It has to work for people who have cognitive difficulty. It has to work for whatever language that community speaks, mm-hmm. right? Like as much as we all like to pretend, Mm -hmm. we don't have a national language. So there are government websites that are translated into 30 languages. Yep. You can't take shortcuts. Right. Before shipping. Right. You can't take shortcuts when you're to be done. Yeah. Right. So a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the work that the kind of civic tech people do is to get the government comfortable with, look, we're going to do a small thing first. And it's not going to maybe cover everybody, 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 but we're going to learn how to make sure we can cover everybody, 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 everybody without waiting until the end. Mm. And that's a lot of the conversation. And that's why there's a lot, you, you try to get people comfortable with the idea of, 
we're going to do a small prototype. We're going to work with just this one community to start and we're going to learn some stuff. Or we're going to work with just this one state. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and that, that should tell you when they think prototype and pilot the scale that they're thinking is like, oh yeah, one state. That's fine. It's just a state. It's just a state. Right? And you're just like, that's an enormous amount of work still, mm -hmm. but it's better than for the entire country all at once. Yeah. It's mind boggling just thinking about just the, especially for the healthcare.gov or the vaccine rollout where it's like you have the, all the nightmare of, of like HIPAA privacy laws and all the nightmare of government privacy protections. And then just, yeah, the each individual state and each individual like city has the, all of their special local laws and regulations and requirements. And that's the stuff. I mean, I find it super fascinating. And it, it also just like blows my mind that we're solving these problems. And it, what it makes me realize is like, no wonder things cost so much. Like we shouldn't be surprised that government software is expensive because we do, even if we're approaching it in sort of the more agile way of, of picking one state instead of covering all 50, at the end of the day, we have uh, the government has to deliver a more complete version of the product that any Silicon Valley startup would ever have to do. Yeah, you can't just ship on iOS. Mm -hmm. There's this weird thing, and I've I've never fully understand it. We devalue government effort. We think that government effort should somehow be cheaper than the private sector. And when I look at private sector, like nobody bats an eye when someone says, "Oh wow, like." engineers at a place like Apple or Google or Amazon or product managers or designers, like, yeah, they get paid a lot of money. Those problems are so complicated, right? Like that's just kind of taken. And then they look at a government one and they're like, oh, why would we spend so much money on a website? I mean, mm -hmm. how much money do you think google.com costs, <laughs> right? Probably quite a bit if you total it all up. How much money do you think a vaccine program that covers the entire country should cost probably quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm also interested in, you know, because you do government projects at Trust and like you're, you know, will have a long history of monitoring and observability and, and in trying to bring observability into these projects, like what kinds of, you know, walls do you come up against, especially when it comes to like government data and health data and things like that? Like, is it significantly more of a challenge than working with private sector clients? It is, although it's often a challenge for good reason. The thing that I think people should feel really good about is the U.S. government takes the privacy and safety of your data more seriously than probably any organization that you give your data to on a regular basis. Like, they, they have, you know, multiple categorizations and they care about all of them right? Like that is what they care about. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about introducing modern tooling and you're talking about introducing observability tooling and you're just, when you're just talking about doing something different, that's the first question is, well, does this thing you want to use, is it going to take care of the data as much as we need it to? Yeah. And that process gets all kind of bogged up and, you know, there's this thing called an authorization to operate that every government website has to go through. That's literally can you run the thing or not? And it's one of those things where the concept is pretty healthy and the implementation is really heavy and very painful and kind of gets in the way. And I think there needs to be a balance there. But when we're introducing tools, you know, we have our conversations with our stakeholders and we're like, hey, like, this is what we're going to get from this tool. This is how the data is protected. This is how the data is going to be used by us and by you. And it's a dialogue. And sometimes the government says, well, you can use that thing 
but you need to use a hosted version because we want to run the thing. We want to hold on to it. How often do you feel like the people on the other side of those conversations do understand what they're doing? They understand what they're doing. Their priorities are not necessarily the same. Mm. So that ETO process, going back to that, the people who are responsible for that part of the, do you get to ship your thing or not? They are not incentivized or penalized. Like if they prevent you from shipping, that's fine. Yeah. Right. Like they, they aren't trying to like make it go. Right. They're trying to make sure that it's safe. Right. Do you think that separation of motivations is healthy or ultimately too restrictive? Like I can see the argument either way. Like, well, you want them to have different loyalties than the people who are trying to make things go, go, go. But on the other hand, if they don't share the common goal of like fixing the problem, then you're just going to be mired in stasis. Witness Congress. That's the root of the problem. Like the structure as it stands now, you are asking people to accept risks in order to make progress. And they're not incentivized to accept risks. And in some cases, and this is something that I've, you know, I've learned over time, it's easy to be like, oh, well, they just don't want to accept any risk at all. And like, you know, poo-poo on them. Here's the thing. If you're in the civil service, right? Like you're a bureaucrat. And I mean that in like, just definitionally, you're working for a bureaucracy. In the US, you have a pension, like you have a retirement pension. Like, that's great. Like you do this and you, you serve your time and then like you get a retirement you lose that pension if you get fired. Mm. Like you lose everything. And so the incentives for someone who's in that like signature position to accept a risk are real tough because they're potentially accepting a risk to their like future. It's not like, oh, you're going to get dinged on your performance review. It's like, oh, well, you you lose all this thing you've been working for for the last 15 plus years. Yeah, and so the incentives... Once you understand the incentives, you see all of these patterns happening. Changing incentives is something that, you know, I as a small civic tech contractor out on the edges, you know, that's not a thing we are in any position to do, but it's not serving us. Like it means that things go slowly. We see this sometimes in the private sector as well, where I guess it's not necessarily like they'll say no to any possible risk, but you hear about it with like, testing and production or chaos engineering, where people hear about anything that sounds like a little bit scary and they just shut it down, even though not doing the thing is riskier than doing the thing well. It's like nobody got fired for buying IBM sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And sticking with the status quo and sticking with the known sort of approaches, it's a lot less scary. And and I think, you know, I, I understand. I briefly got to work on some... Um, government-funded work, and it's super scary when you know like people have been working on this for 20 years, and they've been doing it that way for 20 years, and they're all subject matter experts, and trying to introduce some new process or something throws an entire wrench in this complex machine that's it's been working for them. And it might be working. I mean, that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's okay that most for most of the government to not move too fast most of the time. Like we've seen what happens when government fails and it gets real bad for people real quickly. Mm-hmm. And so the middle ground that I'm, you know, that we're pushing for and that I'd like to see is where the government feels comfortable making experiments and trying things and learning from them mm-hmm. and then incorporating that back into these very large bureaucracies that are very used to doing things in certain ways. 
those ways eventually stop working because the world changes around them. Mm-hmm. Like we as citizens, we as like people who live in this country, what we need has changed. Like what we need from people, what we need from the government in 2021 is very different from what we needed in the government in 1971. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's going to continue to happen. And that's fine. That's healthy. Mm-hmm. But we, we right now it's still very, very, very hard to get that willingness to try. Yeah. And it's been that way for a long time. Well, your failures are going to get broadcast into the front page of the New York Times and nobody ever sees your successes because they're just quiet. Yeah. And this is like that, but like dialed up to 11 on the national scale, especially when you've got a whole party that might be invested in making sure that everyone understands that government doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can I share a thing in the spirit of like raising a success that nobody would ever see? Like Please. my last interaction with the California DMV was totally fine. What? That's fine, fine. There was a website. Like I had to renew my license. I had to renew my license, right? Shit. I went to the website. It told me the documentation I needed to have. I uploaded a copy of the documentation. They validated it in advance. They gave me a ticket. Great. And then once I had that ticket, they were like, go to your nearest DMV, show them this, and they'll tell you what to do next. I did that. They scanned it into a thing and they were like, we will text you when it is your turn. And this was under COVID, right? So they had all the distancing stuff in place. What? They use the text message. And they're like, go wait out in the go wait out in the That's parking awesome. lot, not near anybody. We'll text you when it's your turn. Dude. The whole thing probably took me less than two hours total. There was like 20 minutes of wait time. It was very smooth. It was like not a big deal. During COVID even. During COVID even. And people still hate the DMV, right? People are still mad at the DMV. But I was like, this is fine. This is a good experience. Like there was nothing about this that was this is fine. This is an amazing, like, this should be like the, sh- the slogan of the resistance. Make everything fine. That would be very good. <laughs> yeah. The good enough experience, the good enough, like, customer experience or good enough, like, you know, constituent experience. iPhone camera, cameras. It's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. But where we're at right now is we're in the, like, you're going to stab me in the eye and then give me the thing that I need. Yeah. Absolutely. And I say this jokingly, but I'm totally serious. I mean, this is like ops work forever. Like if it's fine, if it's not noticed, you're doing your job, get mm-hmm. a raise. Mm-hmm. Except that nobody notices. Nobody ever gives you that raise. Yeah. They don't notice until you're gone and everything falls to pieces. And now you understand why the funding problem is a problem. Yeah. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I think my biggest takeaway from all of this, yeah, is um, we already put a lot of trust into government programs. Who's we? I don't anyone with a social security number, I guess, you know, anyone with a driver's license, anyone with like, so I guess citizens or people who use government programs and like most of the government's doing the best that they can with the resources they have at their disposal. And that was my other question I wanted to ask is like, you know, since healthcare.gov, have you seen like a change in the government tech culture and like approaches and are more organizations willing to um, adopt new approaches in the last like decade or so? Yes. So the, the two clearest signals of this are that um, the United States Digital Service and their, their kind of counterpart, ETNF, are both still at it. Uh, they're still doing their thing. And they're the people on the inside who are trying to find agencies that, that want to do this mm-hmm. work and are looking to make these kinds of changes and trying to help them. And those both came out of the healthcare.gov mm-hmm. debacle. 
And I think they have both been, we've been way more successful with them than if they hadn't been there. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's a huge, huge problem space. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we've been at this for, you know, not quite a decade and we're seeing some progress, I think is amazing. Um, I remember several years ago, there was a presentation I was at and someone was just talking about the scale of government and like how it's hard to work with government. And then the speaker like stopped and just said, but here's the thing in government. If you make a 0.1% positive change, you have affected millions of people Mm. with that change. And that's the game. It's this just like Mm. going for those 0.1% year over year and they stack up and like my DMV experience, things are just like a little better for people. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really motivating. Mm-hmm. I love hearing like, even in these big organizations, these big government agencies, when you try, when you convince people and when you show them that new approaches do make a difference, like they do adopt it. We're not stuck. Newsflash, people generally don't want to do a bad job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> in government or out. <laughs> But if you can't actually show them the impact of their work, and this ties it all back to observability, they might accidentally do, you know, the wrong thing or do harmful things because they can't actually see, you know, the consequences of their labor. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It's really nice to have you. You bet. Thanks for having me on. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.